Some are hailing it as a triumphant new dawn for Africa's economic powerhouse. But Nigeria faces some of the same old problems, creating jobs and feeding its poor, as well as a more recent and more brutal challenge, Boko Haram. Boko Haram will soon know the strength of our collective will and the commitment to rid this nation of terror. Bringing back the girls kidnapped by these vicious insurgents, however, has become increasingly politicized. He should take the issue of the Chippewa girls at the top of the transition agenda. In the midst of the violence, the Nigerian political elite enjoys the spoils of widespread corruption, while absolute poverty continues to rise. But how much of Nigeria's troubles and those of other African nations are due to neoliberal policies imposed by agencies such as the World Bank? I'm Mehdi Hassan, and I've come here to the Oxford Union to go head-to-head -head with Obiegeli Ezekwisili, one of Nigeria's best-known politicians, former World Bank vice president, and the woman behind the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. I'll ask her if Nigeria is on the verge of becoming a failed state, or whether it can fulfill its potential and defeat both systemic corruption and Boko Haram. Tonight, I'll be joined by Richard Dowden, executive director of the Royal African Society in the UK, Priscilla Wipo, a British-Nigerian broadcaster and commentator, and Richard Eaterman, a Nigerian economist at the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Obiageli Ezekwisili. She was an advisor to President Obasanjo and Minister of Education, and known as Madame Due Process for her fierce anti-corruption drive. Obiageli Ezekwisili, you coined the phrase, bring back our girls, uh, in relation to the horrific abduction of more than 200 schoolgirls by Boko Haram in Nigeria in April of 2014, a phrase which then became a world-famous Twitter hashtag viral campaign. People like Michelle Obama, the First Lady of the United States, endorsed that campaign. Obviously, someone had to put pressure uh, on President Goodluck Jonathan, who had made very little effort towards finding those girls or even acknowledging their abduction. Having said that, more than a year later, those girls aren't free. They're still in captivity. Is it fair to describe your campaign as a failure? It wouldn't be fair. It would be um, very wrong, simply because you'd be giving a campaign responsibility for what it doesn't really have the mandate to do. Uh, it is government all over the world that has the mandate to uh, provide security for citizens. We have not uh, been able to move the elephant. The elephant being? Being the government in many ways in its inability to act as competently and as swiftly as we would have wanted them to act. But what do you say to those critics, especially back home in Nigeria, who have accused you and other founders of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign of using the missing girls as a kind of partisan political tool, of, a, of using them as a stick with which to beat the government on behalf of the opposition? That would have been the easiest thing to do if that was the purpose for Bring Back Our Girls. But it's not. The citizens who came out 
came out on the basis of shared humanity. The insurgency, so-called by this despicable group, Boko Haram, in northern Nigeria, has led to more than 11,000 deaths uh, since 2011, 6,000 in 2014 alone, more than a million people displaced from their homes. Why has the government of that country, the armed forces of that country, why has it been so singularly unable to quell this insurgency to defeat Boko Haram? I think number one would be the challenges of the governance of our security institutions. It also has a lot to do with um, the issue of capacitating armed forces that do have the capacity. Capacity changes over time. We are still way behind. Well, on that in basis, ways. then, do you agree with the Borno state governor, uh, Kashim Shatima, who said in February 2014, Boko Haram is better armed, better motivated than our own troops. Given the present state of affairs, it is absolutely impossible for us to defeat Boko Haram. I don't think it's impossible. Come on, Nigeria is not a weak country. Nigeria is a strong country. No, but two seconds ago, we, you were telling us about the lack of capacity. Well, not lack of capacity, lack of capacitation okay. of existing capacity. They are two different things. Uh, Nigeria's Human Rights Monitor Group, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the European Parliament, the US State Department have all condemned Nigerian military's handling of the situation. Um, Amnesty accused uh, the Nigerian security forces of perpetrating, quote, war crimes, including extrajudicial executions in the fight against uh, Boko Haram. Have you condemned the Nigerian military for these human rights abuses and for basically acting as a recruiting sergeant uh, for Boko Haram in the north of the country? We have been both advocates for our military, and at the same time, we have demanded accountability from our, from our military. Um, you can do both. There are some clear court cases where there have been evidences provided. It would require domestic further investigations. And do you agree that these military forces have actually escalated the violence by carrying out these abuses? They've actually pushed people into the arms of Boko Haram? For goodness sake, if people feel that the nation state is too far removed from them, there would be a tendency to side even with the enemy. It's about people making them important part of the decision-making process. But that won't process. happen unless people like you, prominent people like you, come out and vocally, clearly, unequivocally condemning the behavior of the government and security forces as well as condemning the behavior of terrorist insurgent groups. I am, I, you know, the Nigerian government would be surprised to hear you pay me such compliment. Of, you know, because I am known for being very, very tough okay. on the institution of okay. our military. Well, I just read out lots of human rights abuses at the Nigerian Military Committee, and you just said we should have an investigation. Some might say that's a cop-out. Oh, you, you assume? You no, but it would be wrong for you to assume that just because Amnesty International said it, then we must accept it oh, as gospel so You're saying the Nigerian military isn't committing human rights abuses? No, no, I'm not saying You're that. saying it's I am sure. simply saying that we cannot, on the basis of just that report, Make Amnesty, a Human Rights Watch, the European Parliament, the US State Department, it's Nigerian Human Rights Watch. The Monitor. Nigerian government has the ultimate responsibility to take care of its domestic environment. Are you saying that the Nigerian military commits human rights abuses or not? Yes it, or no? It clearly does have instances where human rights violation have happened. Surely you would agree that the root causes behind a group like Boko Haram are not just 
the, you know, the radical Islamist ideology that we hear a lot about, or even human rights abuses by uh, troops, but also political grievances, socioeconomic grievances, marginalization, unemployment, poverty, and the rest. And don't people like yourself, therefore, um, members of Nigeria's political elite, don't you have to take responsibility for that, for neglecting that part of the country, for neglecting those young people? I am very vocal in speaking out uh, about the failure of our political elite class. Which you're and, part of, And obviously. I am part of it. I wouldn't in any way pretend that I belong to a lower class. Yeah, well, in I other, in, in other interviews, with the respect, you have said repeatedly you're not part of the political class. I'm well, glad you've accepted that point today. Well, you know, when you talk about political class, you, if, if you said... You're a if politician. I were, no, no, but I'm not. You're not a politician. I am not a politician. Really? What are you? I am not a party. I'm not, I don't belong to a party. But, that doesn't, but you're a government minister. No, well, that's where you're wrong. We I, you weren't a government minister? We don't practice Westminster type of government. We practice presidential system of government. Okay. I, so I became a minister without having to carry party card and, you know, dance in the village. So your definition of a politician is someone who's part of a party. My if, you're a, if you're a federal government minister I for education, for solid minerals, yes. if you're the vice president of the World Bank, yes. if you're an advisor to African presidents, yes. you're not a politician. Well, really. you know, it depends on how, That's a very how narrow broadly... Definition. That's a very convenient definition. Well, you're, you're doing a broad definition of politician. I mean, like... Really? I, a minister in I government? Would, That's yes. not a very broad definition. That's a pretty basic no, definition. No, but a minister in government I'm doesn't in government, I'm a politician. You know what? You are given a definition of politician that is way above the way that I have looked at it. Spoken like a true politician. Let's go, sorry, couldn't resist. Let's go to our wonderful panel of experts who are here tonight joining us. Uh, Richard Dowden is the executive director of the Royal African Society here in the UK uh, and former Africa editor of The Economist magazine. Richard, um, in your view as a kind of outside observer who's traveled around the continent, visited Nigeria regularly, uh, who or what is to blame for the rise of Boko Haram in your view? It's certainly not a new phenomenon. You had in the 1970s, I think, a movement called the Maitatsini who were in Kano, not too far away, the big uh, city in the north. So I think there's a tradition of these sort of movements in, in northern Nigeria. Um, this one caught fire because it is the most neglected part of Nigeria. You ask other Nigerians not from that area, and they say, why would, why would you want to go there? This is the back of beyond, the back of the back of beyond. And it was the heart of the Borno Empire, which was the first great Islamic empire in Africa. And you can see why, uh, if you're a kid there, and you can see you've got no future and somebody gives you a gun, yeah, I'll go along with that. What do you want me to do? Okay, let's bring in Priscilla uh, Wipo, who's a British-Nigerian broadcaster and commentator based in the UK. Uh, Priscilla, when you hear Richard speaking about that gap, and Obi's mentioned it as well, it's undeniable, isn't it, that the North has been left behind by the rest of the country and that there's genuine grievances there that they blame on the rest of the country? It is undeniable, but no, they can't blame the rest of the country. Because when we look at um, Nigeria today, Nigeria is 54 years post-independence. And out of those 54 years, we've had coups upon coups upon coups, which have been led by presidents from the northern parts of the country. So if today we say that the northern parts of the country are struggling, it is because those leaders who are situated in those parts of the country failed their people to do what was necessary. So it's the north's fault that the north is behind? Well, when you consider that we've had 38 years of military rule, 38 years of um, pre um, presidents from the north, who should have taken care of that? Uh, let's bring in uh, Richard Eaterman, who's a Nigerian researcher and writer at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Um, what's your response to what Priscilla's saying about this? 
when people are disenfranchised one way or the other, whether or not it's a certain group of people or the whole nation, there is the tendency to fight back the system. And religion is then used to legitimize that struggle. And that's what's happened to the North. And I think a certain people have been disenfranchised if you, if you consider the level of poverty, the level of unemployment, and, 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 and the level of inequality. And at the end of the day, someone's got to be blamed for it. And I think the political elite over time has to take responsibility for the level of degradation. Um, Obi, I just want to ask you, moving the, move the conversation on, a recent headline to a piece by Sarah Chase, uh, who's one of the world's leading experts on corruption, read, Nigeria's in-your-face corruption may be fueling Boko Haram terrorism. In fact, plenty of analysts have pointed out that Boko Haram, before it became a very violent organization, started off life uh, as a kind of rebel group uh, protesting against uh, the corruption of the state, of the police. My question to you is this. Why is corruption, in your view, so rampant uh, in Nigeria, so systemic in Nigeria today. The Anti-Corruption Monitor Transparency International, which you helped found, uh, it ranks Nigeria as the 38th most corrupt country on earth. That's a disgraceful position to hold, isn't it? The, the major cause is um, the, the failure, the failure of the institutions of the state to function as effectively as they ought to because of the system of governance that we had. But the government of President Obasanjo, which you were part of for several years, that was pretty corrupt too, wasn't it? And some would say it was even more corrupt uh, than the military dictatorship of Sani Abacha that came before it. It was as corrupt, at least, as the current government that's been accused of corruption. That was a government you were part of. I really like empirical evidence. Um, and right now, you don't have any. You just simply well, assume... If you look at the Transparency International well, rankings, they were pretty no, bad under Obasanjo. Well, actually, they didn't really rise radically. Well, they rose and well, fell. Well, you're wrong there. But you reject the idea that the Obasanjo government was as corrupt, or not, if not more corrupt, than governments that came before it, after. It was, there was no way it could have been more corrupt than the government of Abacha. Okay. I'm sorry. Can I, just, can I ask you... Can let's, I ask let's just... Let's just agree you, that you, you, you did not even make that well, statement. I'm not going to agree. I'll tell you why I don't agree. I don't have empirical evidence, but let's do, let's do some eyewitness evidence. Thanks to WikiLeaks, we know that Nuhu Ribadu, the man appointed by former President Obasanjo to head his Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, he told the US ambassador in 2007 that, quote, even more than the Abacha days, where Abacha was the sole thief, corruption under Abasanjo's eight years was far worse because everyone stole. No doubt Abasanjo did as well. He added, Oba was a political machine. He just knew how to play the game for the international community and cover his tracks. The next person you should invite to your show would be Nuhuri Badu. You reject his view? No, no. It's not about rejecting his view. I don't have counterfactual evidence on the basis of which to reject okay, it. Okay, let me rephrase However, the question. What's no, your response uh -huh. to the corruption chief appointed by President Obasanjo, who says the president who appointed me is more corrupt than the military guy before him. What's your response to that? My response to that would be, why did you wait until after the fact to well, actually, make he said that... During, he just said it in a private conversation, which WikiLeaks then leaked to us all. Then, you know, that would really question the issue of the institution that was responsible for fighting corruption. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, because he was the head of the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission, which President Obasanjo, who you served under, uh, appointed. You were an advisor to President Obasanjo in 2003 when he set that commission up. Eight years later, 
Human Rights Watch reported in 2011 that senior political figures who have been widely implicated in corruption have not been prosecuted. Human Rights Watch also noted that the EFCC was selective, dictated at least in part by Obasanjo. Their agenda was dictated by Obasanjo. Do you accept in hindsight that that government you were part of, you were basically, no one's ever accused you of corruption personally, but you were basically window dressing for a very corrupt regime. And here today, even today, you won't acknowledge that fact. Well, you know, I don't know about window dressing. One thing that I was known for was my inability to be a, an image launderer for anyone. I mean, even the president of Bassinger that you are talking about would tell you that any time, any day. Okay, so um, any time, any day, this evening, in the Oxford Union, how corrupt was President Obasanjo in your view? Is that, is that supposed to be a question on the basis of some factual thing that you're putting before me? No, no, I don't me? have the factual evidence, but you were the woman who worked in government. Well, you were nicknamed Madam Due well, Process. Well, listen to me, President Obasanjo. So what Obasanjo, did you make of President Obasanjo's record? Well, my sense of President Obasanjo was that he gave me the freedom to define the work that I did in ensuring that public procurement was more transparent than it used to be. With respect, if you're not a politician, you should be, because these are not answers to my questions. I asked you, how corrupt is President Obasanjo? How I, corrupt was he? And I think His corruption chief says he was more corrupt than Sani Abacha. I, I think what your is question, your view? Little I, bit less corrupt? Little no, bit more corrupt? Well, listen As to corrupt. me. I already said to you that I do not do anything on the basis of anecdotes. I answer I'm my questions. I'm not asking you to give an anecdote. I'm asking you to give your opinion. No, no. How corrupt do you think, as a minister in that government, President Obasanjo was? You're Madam Due Process. Tell I, us. No, no. You're not going to make me say I'm that gonna... somebody for well, whom then, well, I then, have... Well then, well, then you shouldn't really go around saying I don't launder people's images because you are refusing to comment on a public figure in Nigeria. Many people think he's corrupt. His own corruption chief thinks he's corrupt. Well, you won't tell us whether you think he's corrupt. Did what, you ever raise the I issue would of corruption oh, in government goodness, about your I colleagues? Did about what your colleagues were doing. I did, I did. I wasn't popular for that. Okay. The issue that is very clear to me is that based on the track record of what happened in that administration, it had serious corruption challenges. This is great rhetoric. You're saying that government was corrupt, you raised issues, you caused problems. And then I say to you, the person who ran the government, you say no comment. I'm confused so, as to why you cannot tell us why the former president of Nigeria, you, you who ran, doing, according to you, a corrupt government, you just told us there was lots of corruption in that government, as, was the president himself corrupt? Well, now you're really putting words in my mouth. Uh, because, you know, you, you see, you one of the things... That there was no, I'm sorry. In the government you were part of. Of All course, want to know every government has element of corruption. Okay. But don't characterize it in the way you did. Okay. Otherwise, it would be completely different. Okay, let different. me rephrase it exactly with these words. The government you were part of, which had elements of corruption, was the president aware of those elements or part of those elements? He was. He was aware of the elements of corruption and... It was his responsibility to tackle those issues of corruption. Did he tackle it in your we, view? We didn't succeed fully. We didn't succeed fully. Okay, let's go back to our panel. Uh, Richard Eaterman, why in your view is corruption so endemic uh, in Nigeria today? Um, and was the government that Obi was part of in your view, was that uh, less corrupt than other governments that we've seen? I don't think individuals like President of Bassinger or even Doc, uh, Dr. Ezra Chrisley should be blamed for or can can do everything. Because it's institutional. This, this is very endemic and institutional. Okay, well, and what I think that should be done is institutions that can arrest well, let that me just, instead let of me individuals. Let me pick up that point with 
Priscilla Wipo, who's, uh, you know, you mentioned military rule earlier. Nigeria had a series of corrupt and quite brutal military dictators, but yet you still have democratic governments of all persuasions plagued by corruption. How do you break the cycle? Um, I think specifically for Nigeria, it's a matter of time. The country needed to be restructured, and it needed time to do that. We needed a constitution. We needed to have laws. We needed to have all of that. So those things were put in place. I think now what we're beginning to see, um, you know, you made mention of Transparency International. Four years ago, five years ago, we were number two. Today, we're number 38, as you made mention of. That tells us that something is obviously happening to deal with the corruption. Richard Dowden, uh, Obi is often described as Madame Due Process, anti-corruption champion. Do you think her legacy, political legacy, uh, is one of having fought successfully fought corruption during her time in office? I think personally, yes. I, 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 there's no question about it. She's admired for running a, a department cleanly and very well. But in a government that, as, as time has gone by, um, it shows that it was extremely corrupt, and especially towards the end. Just before we go to the break, uh, it's true, of course, that Nigeria has the biggest economy, biggest population in Africa, but given these problems of corruption we've discussed, uh, of institutional problems we've discussed, uh, poverty has been on the rise, inequality on the rise, we've talked about the horrific levels of violence and chaos. Um, is it accurate, in your view, to say Nigeria is on the road to becoming a failed state rather than on the road to becoming a regional superpower? Hmm. That, that, that is a very complex question. The reason is that Nigeria stands at a tipping point where it could either tip to being that superpower or tip to being a failed state. But given it's at that tipping point and uh, it has these huge problems, some analysts have even talked about splitting the country up. Do you regret saying that the creation of Nigeria a century ago was an act of God? I don't regret it one bit. You're telling me to deny my fate? No, I'm not yeah. telling you to deny God. Well, I'm just wondering, will, even I'm if just you wondering did, why I, you think the British Empire is, it was God. The, the British Empire had nothing to do with it. They may have been facilitators of the process, but they did not create So you think Nigeria is a divine I creation? I believe that Nigeria is divinely ordained. And really? I, yes. And okay. you know what? I am not even one bit ashamed to affirm my faith. The issue So, so if it were to break up, would that cause a crisis in your faith? Well, I would say to you that if Nigeria were to break up, it would have happened during the Nigerian Civil War. The fact that we did not break up means that there is a common destiny that we share. We don't have a religious issue. We don't have... You don't a, have a religious issue it's, it's not. It's not. It's not a religion issue. It's not an ethnicity issue. It is not um, any other primordial issues that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the failure of our elite class to galvanize a shared vision for our society. And, and one final thing. And on that note, before, before we take a break, when you talk about elite classes, what does it say about the future of Nigerian democracy that the recent presidential election, which saw the first peaceful transition of power in Nigeria between political parties, given what we talked about the military earlier, does it bother you that another former general is now in charge, a man who was once a military well, dictator? Well, the general is going to soon learn that a democracy is not a military rule. Okay, and on that note, we're going to take a break in... In part two, when we return on Al Jazeera, we'll be talking uh, about the role of the World Bank in Africa. Obi is a former vice president of the World Bank. We'll be hearing from our panel again, and we'll be hearing from our audience here at the Oxford Union. Join us after the break. 
welcome back to Head to Head on Al Jazeera. My guest tonight is Obiageli Ezekwesili, Nigerian uh, public figure, not politician, uh, former minister, and also former vice president of the World Bank in charge of the Africa unit. Let's talk about uh, the World Bank. You served as vice president from 2007-2012, appointed by Paul Wolfowitz, the well-known US politician, architect of the Iraq war. Um, what do you feel you achieved uh, the bank achieved uh, in Africa during that period, especially uh, given the global financial crisis happened during that period, and Africa, Africans were hit pretty hard by a crisis that they didn't cause. They were hit, and um, you know it was the recklessness of Wall Street and um, some interesting institutions around this neighbourhood that um, you know created a collateral damage to mm. economies that had fairly managed themselves well, um, but. Uh, what, what is so interesting about the period that I was uh, at the bank was that as someone from the continent who would always say to a World Bank official, you don't dictate to us what we must do. Now within the bank, I made sure to model exactly the same behavior. And so responsibility for policy shifted to the leaders of the countries. And they began to understand the universal application of just good housekeeping with public finance. That helped a lot. Well, you talk about good housekeeping with public finances. The bank's critics would say that for all its good deeds and good intentions, uh, it pushes the same pro-austerity, uh, pro-corporation, neoliberal agenda in Africa, which helped cause the global financial crisis in the first place. Listen to the view of Joseph Stiglitz, the former chief economist of the World Bank and Nobel laureate. He says, I became convinced that the advanced industrial countries through organizations like the World Bank were not only not doing all that they could to help these developing countries, but were sometimes making their life more difficult. That's undeniable, isn't it? You know, part of what Joe Stiglitz, a good friend, said um, led to many changes. So that uh, by the time I was at the bank in 2007, uh, some humble pie had been eaten by both uh, Bretton Woods institutions in many ways. We had, uh, you know, clearly there had been uh, evaluations. The and the International Monetary yes, Fund. Yes, the International Monetary Fund. But the two institutions are in a battle for relevance going forward. And relevance means that the global financial architecture as we knew it even a decade ago mm. is not the same. And so it cannot stay stuck. Okay, well we'll come to the architecture in one moment. Just on the subject of eating humble pie and making changes, um, you say these changes have been made, uh, you know, acknowledgement of Stiglitz and others. Let's take the recent Ebola crisis in West Africa. Many would say, and in fact the Lancet Medical Journal here in the UK has said, that the austerity measures demanded by international institutions like the IMF, like the World Bank, resulted not surprisingly in weak underfunded, poorly staffed healthcare systems in that part of the world. Listen to uh, Nia Kwete, Ghanaian-born analyst, former executive director of the NGO Africa Action. He says, the World Bank and the IMF have contributed to the weak health systems in Africa, which is why Ebola hit so hard. That's pretty damning. Even the independent um, evaluation group of the bank did a review over 1996 to about 2006 and showed indications that a lot of the social sector suffered under investment 
during that period. And that didn't, because change, on, that didn't change on your watch, is my point. Actually, no, it did. It did. For example, the World Bank and IMF that, stopped pushing austerity well, in recent years. Well, really? Well, you know, one of the things that that, that happened, um, you would see a country like Rwanda. Rwanda is an incredible example of where effectiveness in the use of additional resources that came from debt reduction went to social sectors. Whether it's maternal mortality, infant mortality, it was halved during the period that I was in the bank. These are real indicators that changed. Now, how far does that go? It doesn't go far enough because there is still so much in the area of social investment in health and education to empower the human... And yet the international institutions, all we ever hear from them is balance your budgets, cut your spending, privatise your industries. It used to be the gospel truth once upon a time. I think it is more nuanced okay. within the institutions. Um, one of the things that we have since learned is that when you uh, talk about liberalization and privatization, you cannot become an ideologue with those kinds of economic changes. It must be based on pragmatism. As an African voice at the top tier of the World Bank, one of the vice presidents, did you find it frustrating that the bank operates on this so-called uh, one dollar, one vote uh, system, whereby the members with the greatest financial contributions have the greatest say uh, in what happens? For example, one of, the world's, uh, one of the World Bank's five institutions is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the, the IBRD. Um, 49 sub-Saharan countries have 5% of the vote in the IBRD, while the US, Japan, Germany, the UK and France have 36 percent of the vote in that institution. Do you think that's fair, democratic? It wasn't even seen as fair by the countries you mentioned. After a while, they recognized that this was not the way to go. And so there's been um, an, an agenda to improve and to rebalance. As, as management staff, uh, one of the things that you can do is to ensure that more of the countries on the continent that I was responsible for ran really good economies and began to grow and expanded the opportunities and their options. During that same period, your own country, Nigeria, saw the number of people living in absolute poverty go up, not down, as a proportion of the population. That's pretty embarrassing given Nigeria's wealth, given the growth rate, and yet the poor people, the numbers of poor people are growing, not falling. It's because, you know, there is a, a, a disconnect often between growth and poverty reduction. You, whereas growth is a necessary condition for poverty reduction, but it is not sufficient in of itself. And so the kind of structural change that is necessary in economies requires some really hard-nosed policy choices. Sometimes politically-minded people are not ready to make some of those tough choices okay. and to deploy resources in ways that are effective. Uh, Richard Eaterman, um, do you think World Bank policies largely devised in Washington DC, even if there's someone like Obi in a senior position there, do you think they work for African countries such as Nigeria and others? It's obvious that free market systems do not reduce poverty or inequality in developing countries. There is research coming out of the, of the IMF which clearly proves and clearly shows that at a low level of development, the market is very inefficient 
And, I, and based on that, I do not think that we should continue to pursue free market ideologies. Okay, Richard Dowden, uh, Obi talked about she thinks it's more nuanced now, the discussion, the policies, the ideology. Do you think that's true? I think, it, I think, yes, I think it is. The way in which the World Bank imposed and the IMF imposed structural adjustment in the 90s was so casual, so unconcerned with the direct effects, uh, it was absolutely catastrophic. Priscilla, um, you're, Priscilla and Weepo, you're nodding along to that. I am, because I, I agree with it. The, the structural programs didn't work at all. And I think what these institutions failed to take into account at the time was that the world is moving forward. Um, having somebody like Dr. Obi um, within the organization, I, I don't think she would have had the necessary um, um, liberty to be able to make huge changes. But it is true to say that today, the World Bank and the IMF are starting to move towards changes because the world is changing. Everybody's becoming more alert. You know, the age of the internet makes us all very, very informed. And if we want that information, we will find it so they can no longer hide. Okay, let me ask you this, Obi. If you were given a magic wand to wave over the World Bank and the IMF, what would you change to make it work better in the interests of Africa that you weren't able to do when you worked there? I will define an exit date for them. Define an exit date for those institutions? Yes. Okay. Um, I did say to my then boss, um, President Zolik, that if we define an exit date when everybody would be out of the door because the World Bank and the IMF is done with, it would put pressure on us to succeed at everything Many that critics, we were trying especially to do. on the left, would say that those institutions and the countries behind those institutions have no interest in exit dates. They quite like the dependency relationship. It's well, an exploitative relationship. Frankly speaking, we cannot unwittingly reduce the concept of the sovereignty of countries. We need to get the political leadership of countries to understand that they have a responsibility to their citizens. What date would you like to see the World Bank and the IMF out of Africa? At, at that time, I said 25 years. What, date was, what year was which, that? Which, this was um, in 2008. Okay. So, you know. So still a bit of time left. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's go to our audience uh, here in the Oxford Union. Please do raise your hands if you want to ask a question, uh, make a point. Let's go to the gentleman at the back. Um, my name is Gabrasani. I come from, I was born and brought up from my degree, which is the... Uh, town where Boko Haram was actually uh, kind of born, and I saw and experienced firsthand the deprivation and therefore the social injustice that had been going on there for a long time. I wonder why the Obasanjo regime had not been able to see the development of such deprivation into this sort of violent insurgency. I would have to say to you that there is the local government and, the, and there are the state governments, and they actually, in Nigeria, receive about 50% of the federation revenue. What that means is that in each of the states and each of the local governments, you needed more than the federal government intervention. You needed effectiveness in the investment to lift those regions out of poverty. Gentlemen, the question to you is, as an elite, how much of role did you play in ensuring that more children would have the kind of education that you received? Okay. Uh, let's go back to the audience. Gentlemen here in the glasses, do you want to wait for the microphone to come to you? Um, 
Oxfam has recently shown that the World Bank private sector arm, the International Finance Corporation, is using financial intermediaries to sidestep human rights and transparency obligations and is using this to support land grabs and human rights abuses and failed health privatisations across Africa. And the leopard has not changed its spots. As a transparency champion, does that worry you that that's still going on across the continent? When I was within the bank, anything that had to do with lack of transparency in the activities of any department within the bank, I was known to be an internal critic of it. Um, much more when I'm outside of the bank. It is important that the bank and its uh, uh, subsidiaries should act above board in every activity that it engages in. I think that in many ways, the bank has opened up more. But a lot of people don't realize that there are many tools on the basis of which to demand even a widening of uh, the, 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 the scrutiny. With respect, this gentleman is saying that based on current ongoing practices, the bank which you say has changed hasn't changed. The leopard hasn't changed its spots. No, I, I mean, you can't use one item what he said is about the IFC and its private sector mm. activities. Sometimes it moves away from being a development institution to being an institution that really wants to make bottom line profit. And in the process of that, it might enter into arrangements that may need to be scrutinized a little bit more. It's a question for the lady there. What role do you think the legacy of colonialism plays in the problems of Nigeria today? Significant role in the sense that um, um, I, we, were just, we, were, we just talked about corruption. Uh, the truth is that until colonialism, uh, the, 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 the communities tackled corruption in ways that visited communal sanctions on bad behavior. You knew predictably that when you behaved badly, you got the cane. Now, with colonialism and the advent of the modern civil service, there was not a convergence between existing traditional institutions for sanctioning bad behavior and, the, and what was considered as a, do you know what they call uh, public service in Igbo land, where I come from? Olu Oyibo, the white man's work. So something so alienated from the people, they did not care to demand accountability from it. So that was part of the effect of colonialism. Okay, gentleman here in the tie. Um, my question, to you is for you, about you. Now we are having a change in government. What role do you see yourself playing as a constructive critic or a collaborative insider? Thank you. I, I have done six and a half years in government. It would take extraordinary persuasion of the divine to have me get back again into government. <laughs> but you're not ruling it out. I, I, I just told you who, who would have to extraordinarily whip me into line. OK. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, let's go to the lady here, and then I want to go to the back again. I'll go to that lady there in the front row, though. Um, we, have, um, we have all agreed that this uh, current government has failed in security, especially with the Bring Back Our Girls. I am a major campaigner for you know, the Bring Back campaign. Now we are about to have a new government. How do you think 
we can actually move the agenda forward? Shall we continue to campaign or shall we engage the government, the new leadership, to find a new strategy towards dealing with this uh, issue on how to bring back these girls? Because we need to have an answer. Are these girls still alive? Where are they and why okay. are we not able to get them back? We have already made it clear to the incoming administration that during the transition period, we expect them to rise to leadership on the issue of uh, finding our girls. And so that the transition agenda that they are defining with the existing government must be one that puts the rescue of our girls at the very top of the, of the view? list. Um, there is no counterfactual evidence to uh, make us stop hoping that our girls are alive and will be brought back. And what do you say to people who say that hundreds, if not thousands of people have been abducted in Nigeria and we all focus on these poor girls and those others are maybe forgotten? Well, I don't think that there's anywhere in the world where 276 people were abducted at the same time ever. And that, that for meant that it was necessary for us to use their abduction as a basis to okay. make an inroad into the larger issue okay. uh, that affects many more so people. So I'll that lady in the green top and then that gentleman in the white shirt with the beard has been waiting as well. Um, you mentioned that Nigeria is currently at the tipping point. Um, and I would just like to ask um, what are your views on the three, three top priorities for this incoming administration to lay the um, proper foundation for um, change? Time is short. How about one top priority? So one top priority is going to be uh, to set the governance system right again, to completely overhaul the systems for the prevention of corruption to then make sure that the institutions that exist to sanction corruption actually work. That way it would be a deterrent to bad behavior. For as long as corruption is rewarding, many more people and, would vote and for corruption. And prosecute people from all Prose parties and all governments who've been involved in it? That has to be the supremacy of the law. And that's, that, you know... Even former presidents? Anyone, if, if you investigate, if you investigate and find anyone guilty, they must go before the law. Okay, L lady here. The recent Ebola exposed weaknesses in healthcare system in West Africa. How can the World Bank and other donors ensure that their investment um, leads to improvement in healthcare system investment with a long-term sustainable approaches, and what can they learn from other countries in Asia that have graduated? I would speak as an African and say, how will African countries ensure that sensible people manage their healthcare systems? But that's giving the World Bank a pass, surely? It, no. It doesn't give the world, because the Minister of Health must be able to say to the World Bank Health Specialist, this will not work here. I don't want it. I'm not sure it's as easy as that, with respect. Oh, well, Gentleman there know. with the beard. <laughs> yes, you I promised to come to her. Yes, you? Um, you're a great example of a, a female leader. The campaign on um, Bring Back Our Girls has, at the very least, brought huge visibility to it. Can I ask a wider question about women's rights? One should be done in Nigeria, and one should be done in, by the World Bank to improve the lot of women. The, the, the first thing is to actually educate as many women as possible. The more that we can push the agenda for girl-child education, the better. And that's part of why I am insistent on the Chiba girls being rescued, because it would be a very important signal to girl-child everywhere 
that education would not cost them their lives. Okay, the lady at the back wall, yes, used, right against the wall. Almost Nigeria is currently the largest economy in Africa. Do you think we will soon see a decline in its growth caused by Boko Haram's actions as economic growth and conflict don't go well together? Thank you. Oh, certainly it would have an impact. Um, a lot of critical infrastructure investment cannot happen in an environment of war. This lady here and this gentleman here who's been waiting. Um, so much has been said about Nigeria's long-standing reputation for corruption. Do you think there's a place in Nigeria for a welfare system? Do you think it's feasible it could be introduced and do you think it will help combat corruption? Already, the Good Luck Jonathan administration has actually uh, taken very important steps to begin to design social safety net uh, system. I think it would be to, uh, to do even more uh, in improving in, in improving those systems, uh, and also to, to basically look at the issue of youth unemployment. It's, 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 an, it's a source of implosion in any society. Okay, I promise this gentleman the last question here in the jacket. Uh, my, my question pertains to the, uh, the, the finding of the, of the, of the uh, abducted Chibok girls. Uh, I was going to ask, beyond appealing to the Nigerian government and uh, I suppose other foreign nations to help with securing the release of these girls. Has your organization considered the use of other channels which might not require the approval of the government in finding and securing the, the, the safe release of the girls? I, I mean, it's a failure. It's a failure of the world that we are today not sure whether the girls are situated in one location or the other. Even when our chief of defense had told us some time ago in May 2000 and, uh, 2014 that they knew where the girls are. And suddenly we don't know where the girls are. And suddenly we think we cited them. Enough of the mm. contradictions. Uh, so the parents asked for independent private investigators. And we did go out of our way to begin to find any of those channels. So it is a good thing that you asked. Are you one? <laughs> um, you might want to cast a wider net. Um, one last question from me to you. If by divine intervention you were to go back into government... I am glad government... I finally redeemed your soul. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if by divine intervention you were to go back into government, uh, what would you do differently this time? I would spend much more time than I spent with citizens' groups. The, the, the demand side for good governance is ultimately what builds institutions. Governments can create entities, but they are mere agencies. In order to make them enduring institutions that respond to the needs of the society, the citizens must feel a sense of ownership for those institutions and demand that everything that they need in order to be effective is given to them. I have coined a concept called the office of the citizen. And I have said to my fellow citizens that the office of the citizen is actually the highest office in the land. That's what underpins the government. Well, on that note, we'll have to leave it there. We've run out of time. Thank you so much uh, for joining us here on Head to Head. Thank you so much to our panel uh, for coming here tonight. Thanks to our audience, as usual, here in the Oxford Union. 
Thanks to you all for watching at home. Good night.